One of the most striking things about early Christianity is how fast it grew. It's a fact of the historical record that a tiny and obscure messianic movement located in a tiny and obscure part of the Roman Empire, the rural areas around Galilee, that it grows over the course of a couple of centuries to such an overwhelming size and influence that it, it dislodges classical paganism and becomes the dominant faith of Western civilization. This is an astonishing fact of history. Now, how did this occur? I mean, remember that in the year AD 25, so the year 25, there is no such thing as Christianity. All there is is a young hermit in the Judean wilderness and a somewhat younger cousin who dreams dreams and sees visions. And then within a hundred years, by the year 125, the emperor of Rome has established an official policy punishing Christians. Give it another 200 years, and Christianity has risen to dominate the major cities of the Roman Empire and even Rome itself. Now, some scholars like to claim that the world was, so to speak, primed for Christianity, poised for it, ready for it. That Christianity burst onto the scene as the great answer to the deep questions that people were asking in that moment in time. And there's a grain of truth to that, but it hardly does justice to the historical record. Because, you see, Christianity summoned proud pagans to face torture and death out of loyalty to a Jewish villager who had been executed by Rome. Christianity advocated a love that cut across racial boundaries in a culture that was profoundly racially divided. Christianity sternly forbade any form of sexual immorality, any form of sexual activity other than between a married man and woman. This was in a culture that... that celebrated sexual behavior outside of that. Christianity sternly forbade the exposure of children. This is the ancient world's version of abortion. Christianity stood up and refused that and condemned it. Christianity, it, it, it challenged so many things that the pagan world took for granted. Choosing to become a Christian was neither easy nor natural for the average pagan. A Jew who converted might well be regarded as a national traitor. And, and there were many conversions among the slaves. And you might imagine that, okay, a slave has less to lose than others. And so maybe you could explain all of the slaves converting as having something to do with the elevation of their status. And yes, that's there. But remember, a slave who converted faced very frequently torture followed by death. So how did it happen? Against such odds with a message that was so contrary 
How did Christianity grow so quickly? A phenomenon that there is no other experience or account of in any part of world history. The most probable explanation for the rise of Christianity within its historical context is that Jesus of Nazareth really did rise from the dead. Now, what you think that means is another thing. But what I'm saying to you is that when you take the historical record seriously and you ask the question, how did this obscure, tiny religion become such a dominant thing in such a short period of time, the most probable explanation of the historical data is that what they claimed that their central figure actually rose from the dead is that that actually happened. The early Christians believed that God had done this, that God raised Jesus physically and bodily from the dead. And then this Jesus, who had been raised, spent 40 days visiting with a very large number of people. They saw him. They touched him. They told others about him. We've spent the last several (coughs) weeks looking at a number of the strange stories recorded in the Bible of these appearances. The resurrection can, the, the growth of Christianity cannot be credibly explained by calling it a projection of what they had always hoped. Because nobody had hoped for this. That's revisionism. Nowhere can you find in the Jewish religion or any of the Roman religions the hope for this. And you also can't explain it by mass by some mass hallucination. We have documents, we have evidence of what mass hallucination experiences look like, and none of them can account for this. The resurrection wasn't a projection, and it wasn't a hallucination. What we've seen is that the stories from the Gospels, the stories that we've read, the resurrection stories, they are unlike any story prior to that or since then. And so, yeah... This invites skepticism as much in the ancient world as it does in the modern world. Nobody saw it coming. But again, the most probable account for the remarkable growth of Christianity is that the early Christians really believed that they really did encounter the really dead and now really alive, Jesus. They really believed they encountered him. Not as a ghost, not as... They knew what hallucinations were, but they really believed they really encountered him. And we've seen over the last few weeks that as they began to reflect on this and figure out what does this unrepeatable never before having occurred thing mean that they became convinced that when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of a new creation, of the new world. The world that the one and only creator God had always been promising he was going to enact. 
And that's the most important thing about Easter. Jesus' resurrection is the birth of new creation. The power that has tyrannized the old creation has been broken and defeated and overthrown. And in Jesus' resurrection, God's new kingdom, God's kingdom is launched. It's launched in power and glory on earth as in heaven. In the resurrection of Jesus, God, the early church believed this, God has begun to fix the world so that the world will be filled with truth and beauty and goodness and that the resurrection of Jesus' body is the prototype of the whole world being renewed from top to bottom so that one day everything that is pure and lovely and beautiful and noble and wise will shine out like shook foil. Now we've been seeing this over and over in the past seven weeks. And then last week we saw that 40 days after his resurrection, this physical Jesus, who was dead, now is alive, who had a body, and now he's got this supra-physical body, 40 days after that resurrection, he ascends into heaven. Now, if Easter is about the prototype of the new creation, what we saw last week was that his ascension is about the enthronement of Jesus as the Lord of the world, the true king of this world. Now, heaven, we saw this last week, heaven is not another place. It's not something other than earth. The ascension of Jesus into heaven is not Jesus taking off like some primitive space traveler. The ascension of Jesus is the triumphant victory procession of the victorious conqueror of everything that is bad. Jesus is the one who is physically now in heaven. And what is heaven? Heaven is this other dimension of this earth. It is the control room. Easter tells us that Jesus himself is the first piece of new creation. His, his ascension tells us that he is now running the show on earth. Now we saw last week that you can only understand the ascension if you push out of your idea, out of your mind, this Greek view of heaven that Western civilization has inherited. This Greek way of thinking, you've got to push that out of your mind and you've got to try your hardest to stop listening to John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. You've got to stop listening to this Greek view of heaven. You've got to stop listening to a lot of late 18th century, early 19th century hymns. And you've got to start to try your hardest to imagine what the Bible gives you as the image of heaven and earth. That in the Bible, the words heaven and earth do not describe two different things, two different types of of places. In the Bible, heaven and earth, it, they're not a description of something that's up there a long way from here and something that's here in the Bible. Heaven and earth are two different dimensions of the same place. 
the same reality. Heaven and earth is not about geography. It's about aspect. Overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality. Like the fabric a flag is made from and the symbol the flag projects. Like the weight of an object and the volume of an object. So talking about heaven and earth is a way in the Bible of talking about the fact, a fact that many people and many cultures still today outside of Western civilization, they still understand the fact that everything in our world has another dimension, another sort of reality that goes along with it. And if you stop believing this, you turn communion into a symbol. You see, when when the world is no longer charged with God's dimension, then there's no way this bread and this wine can be anything else because then you've got to have some magic act. No, see, if you have this view of reality, then suddenly you can get past all of those medieval debates about if this is the body and blood, or if it's just a symbol. Because suddenly, all of reality has the potential of being charged with the dimension of heaven. So when Jesus ascended, when you read this with a biblical imagination, you're not thinking that he shot off like a rocket, like some primitive space traveler. What you hear in the ascension is that Jesus is now in charge. That he's been enthroned. As the king of the world. He's in the control room. But is he? I mean, does this really add up? I mean, just look outside your window. Does it look like he's in charge? It's a fair question. It's a really good question. It's a helpful question. If I claim last week, if the Bible is claiming that in Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension, he was set on the throne as the king in the control room that he's running the show, then looking outside and seeing the world the way it is and saying, wait, how does this add up? This is very helpful because you see it drives us back to what exactly is the Bible claiming? Well, what it causes us to realize is when we pay close attention The Bible is claiming that in Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, this is the beginning of new creation, not the end of it. It's the beginning of it. And we touched on this last week. The Christian view of the world, the Christian story, is that the resurrected Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's the king right now. And one day, he will return. He will come again. And when he does, the whole world will experience what he in his actual body experienced in his resurrection. The whole world, like Jesus' body, will be renewed from top to bottom. And this new world... It'll be birthed into being right in the context of this old world. When Jesus returns, God will do, he will complete this action of doing for the entire creation what he started with Jesus. Now, 
In other words, something changed at the resurrection and the ascension. Something really did shift in the fabric of the cosmos when Jesus was raised from the dead. But that moment was just the beginning. And we now live in a moment between his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. We live in this in-between space, in between the beginning of the new creation and the finalizing of the new creation. And where we live now is in this overlapping space. And that's what Peter tries to explain in that long sermon that Aaron read to us when he gives that quote from Joel and says, In the last days. The last days. This was a saying that he reached into Jewish memory, Jewish scriptures, and pulled out. It was a saying that identified a moment in time that no one knew how long it would last. A moment in time that was marked by these two phases. The resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. You see, the Bible envisions the renewal of the earth in two steps, two phases. The first phase arrived through the, the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And the second, when this new creation work is completed, it happens at the return of Jesus. When all shall be well, and all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. So looking out our window at the world today, how can we actually claim that God is in control? Well, we've got to hold this picture that I've just sketched in our minds. The resurrection is about Jesus as the prototype of new creation. The ascension is about Jesus as the ruler of the new creation that is breaking into the old world. And the second coming of Jesus is all about Jesus as the coming Lord and judge who will transform and finalize the work of new creation. And in between, in between the resurrection and the second coming, in between these two great actions of God, the passage of Scripture that we heard read, Acts chapter 2, tells us about the day of Pentecost. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, His own Spirit, into the lives of His followers so that He Himself is now powerfully present, present with us, guiding us, Guarding us, directing us, and above all, enabling us to be the agents of new creation in the old creation. He, the Spirit enables us to move out, saying to a world that doesn't believe it, new creation has started. Jesus is the King. He carries in His own body. The hope that all of us in our own bodies, in our own minds, in our own relationships, in our own cities, in our own experiences, that this, this earth itself, in the way it's been polluted, that every 
aspect of creation is going to get this one day. And so, think about it this way. The story of the book of Acts is about the way in which new creation is moving out into the old. It's about the way in which Jesus' kingdom, his, his rule, spreads out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the, in, to the whole world. It's about the kingdom of God clashing with the kingdoms of this world. The book of Acts is about what it looks like when Jesus actually is running the show. You see, what we've got to do is we've got to look outside our window, look at the world as it is, and say, how is Jesus in control? And then we need to go and read the book of Acts because it claims this is what it looks like when Jesus is in control. It's about the way he's establishing his rule, his reign, his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The book of Acts shows us what it looks like when God the Father answers the prayer of the church that Jesus taught the church to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like when King Jesus starts establishing his rule and his reign in particular communities and then spreads to the next community and the next community and the next community. Well, it looks like the book of Acts. What do we see when we read the book of Acts? We see that the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus is different than any kingdom and any king that we have ever experienced. One of the reasons we struggle when we look outside our window and we hear this claim that Jesus is the king and we look at our communities and we say, no, wait a minute. How can God be in control when it's so broken right now? When such bad things are happening? We've got to go back to the Bible. And just like we let the Bible reconfigure, recalibrate our imagination about what heaven is and what earth is and how they relate, we've got to let the Bible recalibrate our imaginations about what a king is and how a kingdom moves forward. For example... The story of how Jesus, the king, King Jesus, invades another kingdom and establishes his rule, his kingdom. The story of Jesus becoming king in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, like Acts shows us. This is different than what we think of when we think of a nation establishing democracy in another nation that doesn't want it. See, I think the real problem with us when we read the Bible and we think about the kingdom is that we are just like so many people for so many millennia. We live within a kingdom that has only one way of spreading its kingdom. Through force. Whether it's military force or the forceful work of economics. When we read the book of Acts, we see an entirely different king an entirely different kingdom, and an entirely different way a kingdom moves out. It is not smooth sailing. The book of Acts is about God's kingdom expanding throughout the earth. But just read the book, and you'll see. 
The way the kingdom of God expands through the earth is not the smooth, triumphant procession of a conquering nation, a conquering warlord, obliterating the opposition through military power and economic might. As we continue to read through the book of Acts, we're going to see that the methods of Jesus' kingdom are in accordance with the message of Jesus' kingdom. It's all about sacrificial love, great joy, and great suffering. Over and over in the book of Acts, we see joy and suffering. Over and over in Acts, we see misunderstanding, violent reactions. As Luke sketches what it looks like for God's kingdom to come (coughs) on earth as in heaven, we see the twin themes of joy and suffering. In other words, we see the work of Jesus in and through the church matches the life of Jesus in the Gospels. There's joy and there's suffering. So, for example, in today's reading from the book of Acts, what did the people in Jerusalem think as the the kingdom moved out of that upper room into the streets of Jerusalem? Well, they thought two different things. Some of them thought, you're crazy, you're drunk. And others of them thought, oh, this is the truth, we'll sign on. Right there, in that first day, you have accusation and misunderstanding, and you have joyful acceptance. There's joy in their suffering. And again and again, we find this pattern in the book of Acts. We find opposition, mockery, and misunderstanding... And at the same time, joyful acceptance. And that is characteristic of how God's kingdom, not democracy, not Pax Romana or Pax Americana, that is how the king of peace brings his kingdom to people. He lets them reject it. And some of them do. And some of them don't. And those that do, he doesn't smash into an obliteration. He doesn't turn and make his ends justify his means. No. Just like the life of Jesus was marked by suffering that produces victory, crucifixion that leads to resurrection, the life of the church is marked by the same cruciform pattern of life. How does the kingdom move forward? The same way it was established. Through crucifixion and resurrection. And if you're a Christian, that's what we signed up for. Suffering and joy. And there will be plenty of people who do the worst thing an American middle-class white person can experience. Accuse you of saying something you didn't say. Oh, God forbid. I've been misunderstood. They think I hate them. They think I'm unsophisticated. They think I'm not really intelligent and sophisticated. 
Let's not get caught off guard by accusation that we're out of step, that we are threats to the peace, that we are incomprehensible and making no sense. Let's not be concerned with keeping up appearances. Let's say to heck with appearances. Let's stop trying to get a seat at the cool kids' table. Let's get over junior high. Let's grow up. Let's follow a king who who was left and right accused of being unintelligent, illogical, out of step, unloving, insensitive. Let's not be so concerned with that stuff. The book of Acts shows us what it's like when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of of this world collide. And we who are living in the swirling seas of today, let's get our heads around the fact that America is not a Christian nation. Stop expecting it to be. Stop getting mad when the laws change. And let's bear witness. Let's walk in to a nation that is quickly leaving behind any vestiges of Christianity. And let's say, you know what? We actually have more resources for living in a culture that doesn't get us than we do for living in a culture that does get us. And let's join the rest of the world in being Christians in this moment in time. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the kingdom goes forward. And as it goes forward, the methods of the kingdom are in accordance with the life of Jesus. Not only is the life of Jesus cruciform, the life of the church, when we actually act as the agents of the kingdom, the pattern of our life will also be cruciform. It will involve suffering, misunderstandings, violence, And resurrection. The the way of the kingdom in Acts matches the way the king became the king. The risen and ascended Jesus pours out his spirit and through his spirit sends us out to proclaim him as the world's true Lord. Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down, and the church goes out proclaiming the king getting our teeth kicked in, finding surprising moments of resurrection. And as we do this, as we live at the uncomfortable crossroads between cosmic sin-induced entropy on the one hand and the the inexhaustible creative energy of God on the other, as we do this, we will experience joy and pain. Church of the Incarnation. We've said it from day one. We will be a small, healthy church, deeply rooted in downtown Harrisonburg that plants other small, healthy churches deeply rooted in neighborhoods and communities throughout Harrisonburg and up and down the valley. Why did we commit to being small? It was not because we liked small. It was not so that we can all know each other and know our pastor. The reason we committed to being small is we think this is the best way to move the kingdom forward. 
It's not because we don't care about more people in Harrisonburg in the valley. It's because we think that the way God has always moved the kingdom forward is by putting churches in neighborhoods and communities where a church can actually relate to the real reality on the ground in that neighborhood and that community. From the beginning, we've said we would rather be five churches of 300 than one church of 1,500. Why? So that we can all have warm, fuzzy feelings? No. Yeah, that's a happy byproduct, but that's not the driving reason. The driving reason has to be because of the king and his kingdom. Because this is the way we're going to partner with God in moving the kingdom forward into this city and this valley. It's not because of safety and security. It's not because it's more fun. It's not because we're selfish. It's because a small, healthy church in your neighborhood has always been the primary way the kingdom of God moves forward. The local parish church is the most strategic way for getting the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, and the life of Jesus believed and embodied in any particular place. The megachurch movement is a recent phenomenon. And I propose to you it's a failed experiment. It can handle souls, but it can't handle places. The way the kingdom of God moves forward in Acts and in the centuries that followed is through normal people in an outnumbered church in a community doing extraordinary things by sacrificially giving their time and their money and their imaginations and binding together, not with the people of affinity, not with the people that they just like to be around, but with the people they happen to live near. We are small and we are rooted so that we can be safe, not so that we can be safe and unscathed, and certainly not so that we can relax, but because we believe this is the best way to work for and pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. Being small enables us to be healthy so that out of our health, we can plant other churches, and that's hard work, and it involves a lot of suffering. I miss Kevin. And Stephen and Leah. And Scott and Zoe. I miss Jan Norwinsky. I miss the people that a year and a half ago left us. They all sat right back there. And you, you lousy lot took their seats. <laughs> I miss them. Why did we do that? Because the best way to get the way of Jesus and the life of Jesus lived and believed in Elkton is to put a church in Elkton filled with people who live in Elkton, praying for Elkton, taking Elkton seriously. Planning Church of the Lamb was hard work. It cost us a lot of money and a lot of relationships. And we are sad, and we miss our friends. And you know what is the worst part of it all? Today they're having that great Pentecost party at the Nipotniks. How many of you miss that? How many of you are planning on sneaking over there? Don't. The kingdom is moving forward. The best way to labor for the kingdom in Elkton is through a church in Elkton filled with people who live in Elkton. And now we're doing it again. Some of you know in Charlottesville. Some of you may know that some folks from our church have been working with folks who live in Charlottesville and Crozet and we're planting a church there right now. 
Last weekend, sitting right back there, was a pastor that we're interviewing to be the pastor of that church plant. And one day soon, we're going to have to pay another big price. Because to be honest, you're not going to have to pay a huge price for Charlottesville and Crozet. I'm going to pay a big price. Some others are, but not most of us. You're going to have to let me go and be with them some. But where it's really going to come down is we need to plant another church in Harrisonburg. And we're all going to face that moment where we have to give more and let go more. Because small, healthy churches deeply rooted in neighborhoods is the best way to get the way of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the life of Jesus believed and embodied here in Harrisonburg. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the church sacrificially went out. We're Pentecost people. All Christians are Pentecost people. The Spirit is given to us so that God's work can be done through us. How do we do this? Well, we saw last week. We pray. We speak in prayer to the Father for the mess that we see around us in the world. And then we get up off our knees in prayer and we go to work. And we see in Peter's sermon this week, a primary way we work is we witness. We use our mouths to say to people stuff that when they hear it come out of our mouths, they will misunderstand us and accuse us of dastardly things. And Church of the Incarnation, let's live in light of the true story of the world. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the church went out and lived the kind of life Jesus lived. A life filled with joy and suffering. A life of sacrificial love. And this will involve all of us. And the reason we can do this, the reason we can pay this price, the reason some of us a few years from now will no longer be in the same churches together, the reason we're going to be able to give up deep, deep friendships that then no longer stay together every Sunday, the reason we're going to be able to pay this huge price is because God gave us His Spirit. And you heard all those languages? All those languages that were read, it's because the early church went out and the gospel went to all those places. And Mike was speaking in some weird language from Papua New Guinea because Mike was in Papua New Guinea as a, as, as a missionary. And, and Mike was speaking in ta, Urdu because Mike lived in Pakistan as a missionary. And, and did we hear Bulgarian? We heard Bulgarian because... Andrew, driven by the call of God, moved to Bulgaria and met his better half, who then showed him why he really came to Bulgaria. No. Are we going to do the same here? There are people in our church coming here from Stanton because they're praying and longing for a church in Stanton. Church of the Incarnation. We're Pentecost people. We can do this because we have the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your presence in our lives. Help us, God, in the days and weeks and years ahead to live like Jesus, laying down our lives for you and for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.